Hey, folks. I'm Dr. Kira Banks. On today's episode of Raising Equity, we'll talk to Dr. Roxy Manning, and you'll learn how to have anti-racist conversations. Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Hey, folks. I'm Dr. Kira Banks. Welcome to Raising Equity. Today, I'm going to have a conversation with Dr. Roxy Manning, and she's a clinical psychologist, a fellow clinical psychologist, a certified trainer and assessor for the Center for Nonviolent Communication, and her new book, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, Embracing Our Full Humanity to Challenge White Supremacy, will be the main topic of our conversation. And in this book, she shares practical tools that are grounded in the idea of the beloved community to confront everyday forms of racism and how we can directly challenge hateful or habitual forms of discrimination in ways that foster deeper understanding and change. So welcome, Dr. Manning. Thank you, Dr. Banks. I really appreciate you coming onto the show, and uh, I'm excited about your book. I imagine you are too. Oh, I'm thrilled. <laughs> it's been a dream. I was going to say, it's probably been a journey. Oh my goodness, yes. But why this book? Why this book? Why now? Yeah, it's a couple of things. You know, and I'm guessing that you have this shared experience as a Black woman growing up in the U.S., the subtle forms of white supremacy were always a part of my life. And it took a while for me to even recognize this, to learn how it was impacting me, and then to realize I needed to do something about it. But then in recent years, um, since a certain election, it's gotten worse in our country. People have been much more empowered to say things that are hateful, to do things that are having a huge impact on the lives of global majority folks all over the country and the world. and. I kept having a lot of folks who were saying, I want to do something. I want to say something. I want to intervene, but they didn't know how. And so I wrote the book to help people have a concrete way to both think about how to have these conversations and then some concrete steps to take as they're having those conversations. Yes, it's so important. Dialogue is essential uh, at all times, but like you said, right now, even more so. And mm -hmm. in the book, you distinguish between dialogue and discussions or conversations. And, and tell me how you use those terms and, and how you distinguish one from the other. Yeah. I love this question about the difference between dialogue and conversations. Conversations is just us chatting, us talking about stuff. Maybe I'm telling you about even how I was impacted by something. But dialogue takes it to another level. When I'm engaging in dialogue, I want to be fully understood about my experience, but I also want to understand yours. And so it's really about that committed exchange of ideas that's often missing from what we normally consider conversation. Yeah, I think that that's key because a lot of times present day, people want to say their opinion and yes. that's it. Or they want to push their ideology or agenda and you're just supposed to hop on board. But really we should be, engaging in an exchange of ideas, right? Yes. An exchange of perspectives. And if what I think or believe or, you know, how I see the world is still the same after I slow down to listen, to hear mm -hmm. someone else's experiences, okay. But if mm -hmm. I don't allow myself to let in the experiences of others, I think that's where we really lose out. And that's where a lot of folks stop today. I say my piece, you say yours. If we don't agree, we're done. But that's not the case. There's so much about dialogue. And you talk about that actually uh, in the book, like different types of dialogue that are necessary. 
Uh, maybe mm-hmm. share a few of those with folks. Absolutely. And the, the thing that you're naming that when I'm having and when I'm engaged in dialogue, I'm really holding the possibility that I might be shifted by hearing you. I'm really giving myself permission to fully take in your experience and what it's like and to let my heart soften. (laughs) And that's sometimes hard for people to hear. If you've harmed me, why would I want to let my heart soften? And I can come back to that in a little bit. But you asked about the different kinds of dialogue that we can engage in. And in the book, I talk about four different purposes for dialogue. One purpose, and it's going to sound a little bit contrary to what we were just talking about, is that I just need to be heard. I want to be understood fully for my experience. And in this kind of dialogue, I might let you know ahead of time, hey, Dr. Banks, this thing that you did had an impact on me. And I'm not sure I'm in a place yet where I can hear you, but I want you to fully understand what that impact was. Are you willing to do that? And you get to choose yes or no. But I'm letting you know ahead of time what I'm asking of you. I want you to hear me and you get to agree. From that um, basic dialogue to dialogue to be heard, we can build out into a dialogue of shared understanding, which is the one that I think really holds full dialogue, right? So I'm asking you to be vulnerable and tell me about your experience. And I'm willing to show up with that vulnerability and tell you fully about mine. I also sometimes might need what I call a dialogue for healing. And as a psychologist, you get this, right? Sometimes I've been so impacted by what's happened. I have my own almost like core beliefs about how this has shifted my world, right? So as a person, for instance, I remember when I was in grad school, actually even way before that, I write about this experience in the book. I had a professor say to me, and a lot of people have had this experience, I've come to learn, you didn't write this paper, I'm going to give you enough because you plagiarized it because Black people don't write like this. That experience completely shifted my world. I started thinking there's something about me that's not good enough, that he can't just look at me and expect that, of course, I'd be able to write a paper like this, right? And so I stopped writing. And if I were to go back and have a dialogue with this professor, it would be a dialogue for healing. I would want him to understand fully the impact that this had on me, but I would also want to get the information I need from him to shift that core belief, to realize that this was not about something that was a failing of mine. What was going on inside of him that could let him to do this to me that had nothing to do with me and that would release me from this belief that I wasn't good enough, right? So dialogues for healing give us information that can help us shift some of these stories we create about how the world works when we have these experiences. And then the last dialogue is the one that we always jump to, which is a dialogue for solution. It's like something happens, you're like, I gotta fix it, and we go right there. But we often go there before we've understood what's going on with the other person. What do they need and what do I need? We're going too quickly to solution. And so I often think the dialogue for solution needs to come last when it often comes first. I agree immensely. When I consult with organizations, Oftentimes I come in and there either has been a crisis internally or externally, and they want to know what to do. They want to jump to Mm -hmm. doing something to fix it. What's the solution? And I use a framework that um, some colleagues and I developed with when we were consulting with the Ferguson Commission around Mm -hmm. awareness, understanding and transforming is that we can be aware that something has happened, that something's occurred, but we can't fix it, transform things for equity, for justice. Mm if we don't understand how did we get here what's happening right how and and really analyze understand and analyze 
the dynamics, the different experiences, perspectives, right? To to be willing to hear each other. And then that can inform how we transform, how we actually, mm. you know, do something. Uh, so it's very similar, just from a different framework of thinking about mm-hmm. encouraging people. I hope folks who are listening to know that there are different types of dialogue that can have purpose in and of themselves and not mm-hmm. be necessarily solution oriented, that there can be real power in people simply being heard. There can be real power in people having a dialogue for healing. Um, and it doesn't have to necessarily be about a solution. I love what you shared because your model, Awareness, Understanding, Transforming, really maps well into these kinds of dialogues, right? It does. That dialogue to be heard is around building awareness, dialogue for shared understanding. The dialogue for understanding and for healing is part of that understanding phase. And then we get to the transforming phase. And we need to not slow that down. We need to take the time that's necessary to have awareness, to have understanding before we can go to transforming. Agreed. Agreed. Isn't it neat how theories, ideas, models are out there in the world. And when you put them together, you connect them, overlap them, that they connect. And to yes, me, they make, I, sense. <laughs> they make sense, right? Like the, that's the nerd in me, the like scientist in me of like, you know, we're just, we're observing and we're looking for patterns. And so when you see mm-hmm. those sorts of the convergence there, it's neat to see it's like, oh, there's something Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So now I want to shift our conversation a little bit to like what blocks conversation, like what makes it difficult to have these dialogues? Because yes, in theory, I think a lot of people would say, okay, I can see these different types of dialogues, would love to have them easier said than done, right? Mm -hmm. And in the book, you talk about like these blocks, these, you call them connection blocks that keep us from having authentic interactions Mm -hmm. um, and, and keep us from challenging white supremacy and the status quo. Can you talk us through that and give me a few examples for folks to understand some yeah. of those common blocks? Absolutely. So one of the biggest blocks, and I think it's one of the ones that in some ways was the heart of the whole white supremacy ideology, is this either or, right? That I can succeed, but only at your expense. Either I win or you lose. So something like this. We're always doing this binary thinking about everything. And the minute we go into this binary thinking, we lose the possibility of being able to get to true understanding. And so I've had a lot of people kind of double down. It's like, well, the only way that this could work is if you admit that you're 100% wrong, right? And there is no room for me to empathize with why you might have done the action that you did. There's no room for um, me to empathize with Uh, the impact that you had, it has to be that you have to be wrong or I have to be wrong. And that's a huge block for us to be able to connect. If I'm only looking at you through that lens, there's no path for understanding. There's no path for connection, right? Yeah. So that's, that's one of them. And then another one is this idea that there's not enough to go around. This is another belief that I think really comes from that white supremacy idea that the world doesn't have enough resources. And so I got to grab mine. I got to protect what's mine. You can see that this is another form of either or thinking, right? It's like either you have it or I have it. So if there's not enough, it's going to be me. And when we do that, we almost constrain the solutions that we're even willing to look at because any solution that includes you getting something means I'm not going to have what I need. And that yeah. becomes a huge block to connection. I agree. I know 
I know that you do a lot of work in organizations. So this third one is one that I think really comes up in that context. And this is this idea about prioritizing process over content, right? And so I've been in organizations where like a person from the global majority is trying to say like, hey, I want to talk to y'all about this thing that y'all did and how it impacted me. And they keep trying to bring it up, right? And I'll give a an example, a real life example without naming any names. Somebody was trying to raise awareness in their organization about what it felt like to be the only Black person on their team who was not acknowledged when the um, head of their team was saying, we want to express gratitude to the people who worked on this project. And she was saying, you know, you named, you literally named every single person who was on this team. And you had a slide where every single person's name was on this slide. And my name was on that slide and you still did not name me. Right. And this was hugely impactful for this person and part of a larger pattern. And everyone kept saying, but you're being too angry when you're bringing this up. Or we don't like how you're saying this. Right. There's a way to talk about these things. And the focus was on how she was trying to raise awareness about this and not on the content of what she was trying to bring. And this is like an extreme example, but we often do this in really subtle ways, right? We have somebody who comes into an organization and they're expected to know the procedures in which they can bring complaints. And if they don't follow procedure, that complaint gets dropped. You didn't do it the right way. And this is a huge block to connection and to actually being able to take the action to actually get the awareness, like you said, awareness and understanding that will let us transform some of these patterns um, of inequities. Absolutely. And there are a couple of things I wanted to, to connect to there. You talked about that scarcity mentality. Mm-hmm. I use that a lot when I'm, I'm working with organizations who say they want to improve their culture and climate, want to make things more equitable and inclusive. But the way they have historically framed any initiatives around underrepresented groups or thinking about initiatives around diversity, it's been this scarcity mentality. And so if it's you get if you get something, I don't get anything. I've got to mm-hmm. just like hoard all my pieces. Any initiative that attempts to to make sure that a group that's mm-hmm. underrepresented has access feels like it's taking something from another group. And it's it's oftentimes not right. Like if we're talking about mentoring or networking, making sure that folks who are underrepresented have mentoring doesn't take away from folks who already have the network and already have the mentoring opportunities. It's just making sure that people that we have might have been overlooking historically have them. But when we start from and we don't name, and I think that's there's often power in naming these blocks mm-hmm. and just naming what's happening that we're operating under scarcity mentality, that can sometimes jar us and stop us be like, oh, yeah, I guess I am. And yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I already have my mentors and I'm already in this development opportunity and this development track. So just because someone else is just getting the opportunity to get a mentor, that actually doesn't take away from me, right? So, and, then, and to encourage people to go through that, that thought process, to not just mm-hmm. stay stuck in the scarcity mentality. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up just for listeners to, to hear is you've used the term people of the global majority a number of times. It's a term that some folks prefer. Um, mm-hmm. and there's a, there, there are reasons why. And so wanted to give you an opportunity to share that with listeners who maybe are not as familiar with the term. Absolutely. So the term was coined by this brilliant educator, Rosemary Campbell Stevens from the UK and I believe Barbados. And one of the things she pointed out is like here in the US, we use the term BIPOC, 
and lovely term, I, lots of great reasons to use the term, and part of BIPOC is indigenous, right? But if I take that term and I try to globalize it, if I go to Europe and I talk about BIPOC, well, the indigenous people in Europe are the people who have not been racialized as white. So it actually isn't as inclusive as we want it to be. So that's one of the reasons that I don't like to use the term because I'm actually working in this global context. But the other reason, and I think it's a really subtle one, is about the power of language. And so when we think about the term minority or people who've been minoritized, it's always putting us in relation to other people and it's framing white people as the majority, people who are in some ways better than or have more than or represent more. And when we look at even just basic facts, one of the things that Rosemary Campbell Stevens talks about is that people who are of the global majority globally are 85% of the world population. By no means is that the minority. So why are we then referring to them as a minority, which continues to perpetuate the idea that they're somehow less than other folks? Love it. Yep. I wanted to make sure we made that clear for folks because I do think you know, some people feel like, oh, I don't know what to say. Language is changing. It's evolving. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. And it is. And that's great. And we can be learners together. Um, and I, I agree with you. The term people of global majority is much more internationally uh, inclusive than mm -hmm. people of color or black and indigenous people of color. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about nonviolent communication. It's an area sure. that that you're you're certified in. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I think I'd love for you to share just more about the approach. I think when people think about nonviolent communication, they immediately think about just between like two individuals and often mm -hmm. like physical threat or physical violence. But it's so much more than that. So mm -hmm. please share with us a little bit about the approach. So the approach was started, believe it or not, in the 60s. It's been around for a long time by Marshall Rosenberg, who is also a psychologist. And in the 60s, he was looking at what was happening in the civil rights movement here. And he kept saying, how is it that people like Dr. King and all of the folks who are part of that movement are able to show up and persist in their fight, their battle for equity, and still not harm other people, right? They're having all of this harm being done to them, and they're choosing not to respond in this way, but not to give up on what's important. And that was, in some ways, the driver for his approach. He wanted to find a way to help make it possible for us to embody those principles that he saw playing out so well there. And the approach, basically, I have a really good friend, Kit Miller, who used to direct the Gandhi Institute, and she says, nonviolent communication is a consciousness masquerading as a communication tool, <laughs> right? Okay. And the consciousness part is the part I love. It's the part that says, and this is going to sound a little bit sketchy for people who are in the equity field, right? But it basically says, we are all human, <laughs> and we all have the same needs, and when we have conflict, it's because we've developed some really challenging strategies to meet our needs. So white supremacy, that whole system of being, came into place because some people decided that they were going to get their needs met at the expense of other people's needs. But the needs that they had, right, if we want to like really break it down, we're like, maybe they needed some support in knowing how to like live in a new world. They needed some support in learning how to like manage these large plantations or grow crops or whatever. And they could have said, you know, hey, let's all work on this together. And instead, they chose a strategy that denied the needs of other groups. But when we think about the needs, like 
I need support in learning how to feed myself and, and survive. Those are needs we all have. So that the conflict is not about us being humans. It's around what are the strategies we're using to try to meet our needs. And if I can figure out what the needs are that you're trying to meet, then I have a pathway to, you know, this is that understanding piece you named. So if I can get that understanding about your needs, that helps me figure out what steps I can take to transform your strategies so we're better meeting all of our needs. And that's like at the essence what nonviolent communication is about. It's recognizing that we're all human and if we're all taking actions that are strategies to meet needs and we can complain and say, those actions are not working for me. So let's find a different way to get our needs met. And I think that's really important because it's not about saying that just because you have these needs, you get to do whatever you want, which is, I think, one of the ways that people can problematize modern communication. It's just recognizing, and this is going back to the origins, Dr. King talked about, we need to build beloved community that it's not about creating a world where black people are on top and white people are on the bottom, but a world where everyone is thriving. And that's what the heart is. How can we get to that place where everyone is thriving, where everyone's needs are met? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so let me just make sure I'm understanding. Were you thinking that some people who do equity work might not love that uh, the the framing because it it might sound like color evasive language, like we're all the same, we all bleed the same, we're all human, right? Mm -hmm. But that's where I feel like it's so important to not get stuck in the binary, right? That that exactly it's a both and. Yes, we are all human Mm -hmm. and we have needs and we've built systems, structures, practices, policies, norms. There's power dynamics. Mm -hmm. We've set things up in a way that that we haven't seen people in their full humanity. And so it's, I think it's a matter of, at our essence, our, seeing each other in our full humanity is essential and also being honest and naming what is our current exactly. reality, what we're currently acting out doesn't connect with that, is not, is not in line with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even just extending what you've just said, it's acknowledging and being transparent and real about the fact that even though we're all humans. We've built systems that doesn't recognize my humanity. Exactly. Where people look at me and say, you are not the same as, right? Right. And I need to be able to address that to both, like nonviolent communication is one of the things that empowered me to say, actually, I am going to resist this system, the system that doesn't see me and say, I do matter. I do have value. And I, well, one thing I can add, it's not quite about the book, but you mentioned uh, how to have anti-racist conversations, the main text. Yes. But And we've been talking about how to have self-compassion, how to like recognize our needs. And so I just want to call out that there's a companion text called The Anti-Racist Heart. And that book is a really great resource if you need to figure out like, where are my blocks in being able to speak up, right? As a person from the global majority, I've told myself I don't have permission to do this or I'm going to be harmed. How can I work through some of those blocks? Or- Maybe I'm a white person and I kind of just fall apart when someone tries to tell me that what I did didn't work for them, right? So how do I notice what's coming up there and work on that so I can have these conversations? And so I think that the thing that I'm recognizing I want to highlight is this inner work part is huge. 
that I can write the most beautiful book, I can lay out the steps, but we also need to do our inner work because we have been conditioned to respond to white supremacy in certain ways. And we have to work to undo that conditioning so that we can make different choices. Absolutely. And so it might be a, a an opportunity to just talk about the book a little bit more in terms of making sure people know where to find it and the companion text. So mm-hmm. we've we've mentioned the book a number of times, right? Mm-hmm. So it's how to have anti-racist conversations, embracing our full humanity to challenge white supremacy, right? And so where can folks find the book? Right. It will be released on August 29th, but you can pre-order your copy now on any bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, any place you normally go. And I want to encourage you to support your independent bookstores. Yes. And will the companion text be out at the same time? They're both released on the same date. Same date. Wonderful. So folks can not only get some of the theory and, and conceptual ideas behind how to have these conversations, but then get a workbook so you can actually practice. You know, it's it's so important because I think about you talk a little bit about like internalized messages of anti-blackness in the book. I think about it slightly different, but similar and that mm-hmm. they're appropriated messages. And the reason I like that framing is when we talk about internalized, we feel like it's in us and we have to mm-hmm. excise it and right get it out. Mm-hmm. But if we think about it as appropriated, it's something we pick up. It's something we we might learn. And And as psychologists, we have lots of theories around how to interrupt behavior and interrupt learning. So I think about like, if I can appropriate something and pick it up, it's easier to put it down than it is to like do surgery to get it out of me. And I've been encouraging people to think about how you pick up or appropriate Mm. messages, not only about your inferiority, what myths and stories and lies have been told about who you are and as as, like from a deficit perspective, but Mm -hmm. also your dominant identities, you know, which ones have you been told stories about that have made you think it's the right way to be or the only way to be or the preferred way to be? And and I think that that also maybe it connects to the self-compassion piece of like, we're often a mix of those different identities and have been told a bunch of stories about who we are. And one of the things I've seen in having conversa- anti-racist conversations is people will get very defensive right? Mm -hmm. Because like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm not a bad person, especially if it's a white person having the conversation, feeling like they're being attacked and just to invite people into curiosity around how you might've been told um, your race, gender, sexual orientation, Mm -hmm. your different aspects of your identity, what you were told about them, because that sometimes shapes how you come to these conversations. Mm -hmm. I love this piece. And I'm if you don't mind, I'm going to borrow your term, right? I well, it's, and it's not just mine. Yeah, Tappan is an educational psychologist who started using that phrase. And so mm-hmm. the, uh, there's a psychologist, Campone, who brought it into our field. And then so mm-hmm. definitely not just mine, but folks are starting Lovely. to think about it and conceptualize it that way. I love that idea because we can have choice. And I think that's what we don't recognize. But going back to this idea of having choice, it goes back to what you said, right? I need to understand. I need to become aware of the fact that this was something that was given to me, not something that is, matter of fact, um, automatically uh, manifesting, right? It's not the, the natural way of being. You were given this and you get to say, no, thanks. Take it back. I don't want this. Right. Right. But you got to see it and name it. Actually, exactly. I'll ask this question because this fits very much with what we're talking about. You talk about the blindfold of privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think often people hear the term privilege and they get defensive. Right. They get Mm -hmm. like, oh, and they 
can't hear what is being said anymore because they're so defensive. Um, mm-hmm. But again, if we can be curious about how things have been set up and how how in our environments there might be parts of our identities that don't have barriers that others have. And that's that's as simple as it is. That's the privilege. Things are set up in a way that benefit you and your group and your identity. But you talk about the blindfold of privilege. Mm-hmm. Share a little bit about that. Yeah, it's it's just acknowledging that if I have privilege, I get to move through the world in a certain way. So for instance, right now I have a house, right? <laughs> and I feel so lucky to like actually have a house and have a mortgage. And it means though that when the weather's bad outside, I'm not really as impacted. I get to be inside my house. I don't even notice like how cold it's gotten at night because my heat is on. If I don't have the money to like turn on my heat, if I don't have a house to shelter me, then all of a sudden it's like, I can't help but be aware of it. My house becomes a blindfold that protects me from having to be aware of these things because they're not impacting me. And it's not like I'm a bad person because I'm not aware of it. It's just that I need to take on that extra step of curiosity, that extra step of saying, and what would it be like to be outside in this weather right now? right? Well, what would it be like if I couldn't turn on the heat in my house? I'm sure in Texas, you know, like when that horrible stuff happened with the climate, the winter storm, and then the climate, the energy stuff crashing. Oh, yeah, the grid. Yes. Yeah. A lot of people all of a sudden became aware of, wow, we don't actually have something set up where people can really stay warm all the time, right? And if I don't have this house and I don't have the money to turn on my electricity, people die. And that's something, an awareness that people didn't even have that their privilege protected them from having before that happened. So it's really just around, how can I be curious about what it would be like if I didn't have these different things in my life? Not to shame me for having them, but now that I'm aware of that, is there a way that I can help other people address the challenges that they might face when they don't have what I have? Right, right. And I think that's the key, right? It's not about shaming someone oh you've got this you should be ashamed or paralyzed or feel guilty um no be notice because there can be power there often well there often is power when you have privilege right but there can mm-hmm. be a really um if you use it and use it to extend those those privileges to other folks there mm-hmm. can be power in you recognizing naming noticing where where you have privilege, where things are working for you. And so if you if you realize, oh yeah, it's a privilege to have this house, to have this heat, how do you then extend yourself to try to have other folks who may, who mm-hmm. are unhoused, who don't have that, have access to it also be able to be warm and have shelter? Yeah. And I think absolutely, because that goes back to that connection block, the either or connection block, because we kind of think that well, if you're pointing out my privilege and that I have something, are you essentially saying that either I have it or I don't, right? If I'm a good person, I must not have it. It's like, no, I can have all of the wonderful, great things I have in my life and want to work to help you also have those wonderful, great things too. It's not about either I have it or you have it. That's not what we're trying to do when we raise awareness about inequities. We're trying to say, how can we make it so we all have this? Yes. Very good point. Very good point. Anything else that you want to chat about before we close? Oh, I mean, there's so much. I'd love to there hear is. more about your work and, you know, just even talk about how communication and self self-compassion shows up in the work you do in organizations. But yeah. 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 No, I think it's interesting. And, and I'd be happy to stay in touch with you to chat more. <laughs> but I think about um, mostly in my <laughs> clinical work. And actually, in, in work in organizations where there are groups that are 
the non-dominant group. So whether it's folks who identify as queer or folks who are have disabilities, right? Like there's, I feel like there's a way in which sometimes, again, this is not, folks are not monolithic in terms of their identities, right. but there's some folks who, it's almost like they, they've been socialized, not almost like they have been. Some folks have been socialized that this is just what you do. Like you just suck it up, that there's mm-hmm. not going to be change and you don't really try to affect change in these big systems, these big institutions. And that mm-hmm. like almost, this is being dramatic, almost that they don't matter enough for things to change, that they're mm-hmm. not worth yes. an organization treating them better because it's mm-hmm. never been anything different. And so in a way, they're managing their expectations. They're mm-hmm. protecting themselves. But again, I think if they had a child, a grandchild, someone they really cared about who was in a situation where they weren't being treated well or, or seen in their full humanity in a space, they would likely encourage that person to try to get seen or to go somewhere else. But then, like you said, it's not that simple because they might need this particular job to support their family, to do what they need to do, right? So it's not always simple, but I see, I have seen folks not slow down to, to have enough self-compassion for the situation that they are in yes. and uh, can be really hard on themselves. And I think it's just so touching when you say this, because for so many of us, it's again, that, that baggage we've been given, right? This message that you are not good enough. You are not worth it. That every time I have tried to speak up, the response I get is like, ah, we don't have the resources for that scarcity, right? And so we become conditioned. It's it, This is a place where I find compassion. It's like, this is not something I decided, woke up one morning and said, I'm not good enough. This is a message that was given to me over and over and over and over and over again. And I always want people to recognize how much courage it takes to go against that message. When people tell me, well, when you're talking about dialogues, why doesn't this person just say like this didn't work for them, right? I'm like, because they've said it a million times before and they never got any good response back. Why would they think it's worth saying it again? Why would they put themselves in those shoes? So this is around having compassion for the person and then also holding ourselves with care when we don't show up in the ways that we really wish we could. Yeah.
there was one other thing that came up as you were speaking that made me think about the whole approach for the book, right? So like you mentioned, compassion is a really huge part of the book. And then also this idea about building beloved community. So it's compassion towards myself, but also compassion towards other people. And one of the like takeaways I'd love your listeners to, to have is that people tell me, well, why should I even do that? Why should I go through the effort of wondering, for instance, why this white person who just did something hard for me, why should I even care about their experience, right? They were wrong, why shouldn't I just judge them? And I always tell people it's about that practice, that the same way that people keep giving us these negative messages, we give it to ourselves. And if I practice giving you judgment and blame and shame, then when I do something I don't like, all I know is how to do that. So I turn it turn it right back towards me. So if I want to change how I hold myself, I also can start by changing how I look at other people when they do things I don't like. Mm. If I can give people grace, I can give myself grace. And it's sometimes easier to do it to other people than it is to do it for ourselves because we have so entrenched beliefs about, you know, I'm just not good enough or I'm being selfish or vain if I try to give myself grace about something. You know, you just made me connect something I hadn't thought about. I am not a fan of like cancel culture of Mm -hmm. people, you know, being like, oh, they need to be canceled because it lacks compassion, right? But Mm -hmm. if I'm saying that I've observed that oftentimes folks don't have the self-compassion for themselves to to do, I, I don't want to be reductionistic, but if we talk about that, the, the difficulty of having the compassion for ourselves that we might have for others, mm-hmm. then we don't have it to give. We don't have it to give out and we don't have it right. to give, our, give ourselves. And that would actually further entrench us in canceling people. Exactly. And that is, you've just named my challenge with cancel culture, that it gives us a lot of practice in saying, we're not going to engage in dialogue. We're not going to understand what the needs are. We're just going to write you off. And it's easy to do that to other people. It's easy to do that to myself. Right. And you wouldn't, but if you really slow down, you want grace. Right. Because there's ways in which you've messed up. And if someone were like, I'm canceling you, we're not even going to talk about it. You'd be like, but, but. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Interesting. Huh. I'm going to keep chewing on that. Um, But I appreciate you giving us a lot of food for thought Mm. around just, you know, dialogue gets thrown around a lot, but you've Mm -hmm. done a really nice job of breaking down some of the different types of dialogue, some of the different common blocks that we might have to engaging in it and some strategies. So I want to remind, or actually before, before I start to close uh, where can folks find and follow you? Do you ha- you want folks to follow you on social media? Where can they find yeah, about your work? I'm on, I'm on social media for sure. And if you follow me there, you'll get some updates about the books. So I think it's Roxy Manning PhD or Roxy Manning on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. And also I have a website, RoxanneManning.com. You can also go to the book's website, AntiRacistConversations.com and see a trailer about the books, learn a little bit more about them. Love it. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun. Yes, yes. And I hope listeners do pre-order the book, right? Pre-order the book, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, and also the guide that comes along with it so you can practice the strategies. And hopefully I I have, um, in my conversation with Dr. Manning, encouraged you to perhaps be more curious about engaging in dialogue rather than it feeling like something that's unattainable. 
Uh, it's something we need, especially in this day and age. So please do follow me as well on socials. I'm Dr. Kira Banks across all platforms. Thanks for joining me on Raising Equity. <laughs>